Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, we are taught what it means to truly repent. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, The Need for Repentance. chapter 2. Let's read verses 1 through 11 to get the context. Specifically verses 3 through 5 are what we're considering um, for our time to study this morning. So Romans 2 beginning in verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first, And also of the Greek, the glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Please bow with me and let's pray to the Lord. Oh, our God, um, Lord, we are dust and you are the giver of life. God, we're the ones you've made by the breath of your mouth and we come to you now. Father, we want to ask that you will work um, in this time. Please give the grace that as we have done so many other times to come and open your word and we do it so much, it can start to feel like routine. I pray that it won't be routine. I ask God that in a new and fresh and powerful way, you will once again do the miracles that are required for any good to happen right now. I ask God that the miracles that need to take place when your word is preached and also the miracles that need to take place for your word to be heard and received and heeded and obeyed, I pray God that these things will happen. If you don't bless, no good will come. We long, oh God, to know you. We long for, oh God, for this to be a time that your word opens us up and lays us bare and we're challenged, convicted, encouraged and all of these works of transformation and renewal take place, oh God. So please, for the glory of your name so that more souls love you, so that more souls rejoice in you, please make this a time where your truths are rightly taught and understood and God, that you show yourself in it. And so for the glory of your name, We pray that you be at work and we ask it through the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Here's a bit of a summary of the argument that has been being built thus far and kind of where we're going in the coming days, this whole section in what God is showing. Having now exposed the evils of uh, paganism and atheism, he did that back in chapter one, and we were told that the wrath of God has already begun to be poured out on these evils, and there is wrath of God to come. The attention then turns to the Jewish audience. And in a similar kind of way, a message is spoken that says, the wrath of God has already begun to be poured out on you, and there is wrath that is yet to come. Just as those engaged in false religion of paganism, atheism, have no excuse, so you also have no excuse. And of course, this have, has application to us as, as we look at um, the temptations that come to a church people, some similar kinds of temptations that existed to the Jewish audience. But we do need to kind of see these things from the perspective of the original hearers that are there. So he says, you are without excuse. You also are under the guilt and the wrath of God. So if that man, if the Jewish reader, were to read that section where Paul says that in verse one, he might kind of object and be like, well, what, what, why? Why do I have guilt? Why do I have the wrath of God? Why are you saying I have no excuse? Here's the response. Actually, this, this whole text, this whole line of thinking is gonna have a lot to say to that response of here's why. But the very first one, the very first one that is given here is because even the religious man has sinned before God. Yes, to the, the Jewish reader or to the, the church kid who grew up or the religious people like us, but who have not yet turned to Christ, who are maybe thinking that we're okay on our own, our good deeds make us right with God. To that individual, yes, you might have been more obedient than the pagan worshiping a false idol. He's also going to say you might not have been. But you might have been more obedient, but that doesn't mean you do not have sin. That doesn't mean that you also do not need the grace of forgiveness in being counted as right with God through Christ. See, that religious man, but who is apart from Christ... And that could refer to the Jew. That could also refer to the American who grew up in the Bible Belt with a religious family. It could also apply to anyone in this room. Anyone in this room who is still thinking that I can be okay with God. I'm fit for heaven. I, I'm, I'm okay with God. I'm fine because I'm a good person. I've got good works. I've lived a good life. I've got a good heart. I'll be okay. That way of thinking has a tendency of looking at the sins of others and feeling exalted, passing judgment, and in feeling that exalted kind of, ad, that kind of thought, there can kind of come the idea that I don't need the grace. I don't need this salvation. I don't need to repent and go through all these things like you guys are saying because I'm fine. So to that individual, or if that is you in this room, this text is going to show you with a line of logic and argument, show you why you need Christ. 
why you are guilty. Your works are not enough. And so for some who think in that way, and maybe if this is you this morning, maybe, maybe some of you in this room kind of have this idea, man, I like this church. Guys are nice enough, like kind of being a part of this, but I kind of wish you guys would stop talking about this whole saved thing all the time. Wish you'd stop telling us all this need to repent and all this kind of stuff. If you guys would just calm down about that, this would be a really nice place to be. If that is the way that you think, you're not alone, you're not alone today, you're not alone in history. This is a common human thought. But if that is the way you think, this section is for you. But also is also all of chapter three and all of chapter four. The whole argument is meant to show the error of thinking that you can be right with God based on any goodness in you. The whole line of thinking is meant to bring you to the place that you see you are in need of a righteousness that is outside of yourself and has to be brought to you. You have no works whereby you can come to God and say, here, this is why I deserve to be right with you. What God is showing is all of us are face down before the feet of God and all in need of Christ all in need of this thing that he calls salvation. So let me, let me show you a little bit of the argument. Every once in a while, it's helpful to kind of take a little bit of step back. We're in so close, we're examining leaves. And it's helpful once in a while to take a little step back and see the forest. Here's the kind of the line of logic. So to show that, here's one of the ways he's going to do it. Jump to chapter, you're in chapter two, look at verse 13. Look what he says here. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now you could read that and go, well, wait a second. That's exactly what I've been saying, preacher. The good people are the ones who are going to go to heaven. The argument's not done. He establishes that principle. It is not those who hear the word of God who are right with him. It's the people who are the doers of the word, the ones who keep it. And then he continues on. Down to verses 25 and 27. And then as you come into chapter three, verse 20, and you come into verse 23 of chapter three, he then makes this point here. Here's an additional point on top. It is not the half keepers of the law who are righteous before God. It's not even the mostly keepers of the law who are righteous before God. If you're going to be righteous before God by your deeds, you cannot have only kept 99% of it. It is only the total and complete keepers of the law who are righteous before God. Well, who has done that? No one. That's the line of thinking. Chapter three, he comes in and lays the greatest blow, I think, in all of scripture to the self-righteous man's pride in thinking that I am right with God by my deeds and he comes in in a section that on that Sunday or however many Sundays it takes for us to get through it, okay, gonna be a little depressed after those days. We're gonna try to extend the, 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 the grace of Christ in the midst of that, but we are going to see there is none righteous, none. No one has ever been a total and complete keeper of the law 
except the one who is the God-man himself, except Jesus Christ. And in that, we see that every soul other than Christ is in need of salvation. We are all guilty before God and in need of salvation. Every single one of us are called to repent, to leave our rebellion against God to turn a heart away from sin that recognizes I need to be saved and I am coming to Christ to receive this. And so in making those points along the way, there's all kinds of other things that are said that all sort of help support that argument in getting there. And a major point that is made today is this. Here's kind of the central idea. If you've got your bulletins with you on the back, I put an outline that works all the way through verses one through 16. The bold highlighted point there, that's the one we're primarily considered today. Here's another way of saying the central idea of today. It is a hard, stubborn, and wicked heart that refuses to repent, that refuses to to acknowledge my need of this salvation and refuses to come to him. So the gospel calls out, the message of Christ calls out to every soul on the earth and says, you must be saved. But for the self-righteous man, the man who believes that he is good enough for heaven, he says, now preacher, calm down a little bit. You don't understand. I'm a good guy. My principal told me I have a good heart. You, you don't understand. I do all these good works. Pastor, you don't know how much I go to church. You don't know how, many, how much money I have given to these things. I don't need this saved thing that you're telling me about. And the text is gonna say many, many things to that man to prove to him that he does. But one of the responses of today is, no, you don't understand. Your refusal to admit your need of Christ, to admit your need of salvation is showing you are stubborn in the face of God. It is showing that God is calling you to bend the knee and you have locked it. You will not bow. And that is a wicked and stubborn thing. And so just kind of right here at the beginning, I want to go ahead and make some of the appeal and just kind of move to the application so that it's crystal clear as we work through these things. If, if in your heart, you have been thinking that as we talk about these things of the need to be saved, if you kind of just keep holding on to that hope of your human goodness, that I don't really need this, hear the text calling to you telling you that you are exposing your stubbornness and you are storing up wrath. It's a weird thing, but the church always has this. The church always has a group that, you know, enjoys being and enjoys the Bible study, but just can't get to the place that they admit this part. And scripture is showing you, you must and there's always kind of that group. Let me tell you the danger of false religion, even the danger within false religions under the name of Christianity. You've got all of these groups out there that are constantly teaching things like your confirmation is what takes care of your spiritual needs. 
There are even those groups out there that teach that when you are baptized as a baby, and you know, kind of parenthesis here, we do not believe that baptizing baby is legitimate. It's never done in scripture. That's a contradiction of the meaning of baptism. But you've got numerous churches and groups out there that teach when you got baptized as a baby, that took care of your spiritual need. Or there's other groups who may be thinking, well, when I prayed that prayer at church camp or when I went through this religious experience, that took care of me spiritually. And scripture is calling out to you to say, none of those rituals, none of those acts make you right before God. You must repent. You must come to Christ. But the text also calls out to Baptist. Let me warn you. There is going to be a whole section of hell comprised of Baptists. And I think it might mostly be comprised of those who got scared and pressured into praying a little prayer at eight years old and then got baptized because this is what you're supposed to do, but who never truly turned from their sins. May not have even had that explained to them. Now, I'm not saying you can't be saved at eight. I absolutely believe that you can. But a great many Baptist kids, a great many church kids grow up with this idea that because I'm in a church, because I went to Sunday school, because I prayed this little prayer in Sunday school or at vacation Bible school, that this makes me okay. And this passage calls out to you and says, you must repent. And if you refuse to truly Turn to him. You also are being stubborn before God. There is a need to examine our hearts. And the scripture would show examine our lives to see is there fruit of repentance? We are called to turn to him. So that is the main idea. Repent. You need Christ and it is stubborn if you will not. But to explain all of that and to dissect the sentences that are used, I've got three subpoints here. So the main point is number three in your outline. Here are three subpoints. Letter A, passing judgment on others does not deliver you from the wrath to come. Look at verse three with me again. But do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? See, here's, here's what's going on with that. There is one sense in, we, in which we could apply this to everybody and say, when you judge others, it can really make your flesh feel good. If you want a quick way to feel exalted, go look for the faults of others. And suddenly you will feel better about yourself. It's wicked, okay? But it will make your heart feel exalted in that. And there's a word here that we need to see that you can get so caught up in feeling holy feeling superior over others that we can neglect to look at our own hearts. There is that application. But I believe what's meant here is something that's even deeper. Because this section is specifically written to the Jewish audience, consider this. We mentioned when we studied verse 1 that different groups have certain tendencies and certain temptations. And it is just a reality that Paul's fellow countrymen, the Jews, in this first century especially, they had a temptation and a tendency towards self-righteousness. And we do as well. 
You need to know that by, by being a part of a church family, there is always that temptation that we can get exalted and begin to feel superior. We are to fight that. But these Jewish, these Jewish folks had a tendency to be those who passed judgment. And there's one sense in which they felt that they had the right to. They were the people that God had made the covenants with. It's going to be a point we bring up numerous times as we work through these sections and why this is addressed so often that many of the Jews believed they were safe. They were shielded from the wrath of God just because they were descendants of Abraham and God made a covenant with Abraham. But there was also this. There was also the fact that to this group, God had given the law to, the law of Moses the law of the old covenant, the, the law that God gave at Mount Sinai there. And, and the law of Moses did numerous things, but here is one of the most amazing things that the law did. The law clarified and spelled out morality. The law clarified and spelled out in crystal clear writing the moral law. Now it did more than that because there's that ceremonial part as well. And we'll get into that later in the book of Romans but it spelled out the moral law. And let me give you a little bit of an example of what I mean by this. We Christians teach that abortion is murder, abortion is wicked. There's a group in the world who declare that it is not. Who's right? Who's right? Well, I want to argue deep down, everybody knows. Deep down, we all know. The moral law is written on our hearts. You can't rip the arms and legs off of a baby and claim some kind of moral neutrality. That's absurd. We all know the moral law is written. But if there's any fogginess, the law of God comes in and the law of God spells it out. The law of God takes all the aspects of right and wrong, of good and evil, and spells them out. Whenever you study through the Ten Commandments, when you study through the law, it is just brilliant how perfect it is, how amazing. You're just, you're just, you're just left kind of in awe at the genius of how God laid these things out and spelled it all out. But it gave the Jewish folks in the first century, a temptation and a tendency to believe that they could look at the world and they had the law, we can judge the nations. And a little bit kind of like, suppose the teacher leaves the classroom for a little bit, leaves for a few minutes and then comes back in and she walks in, opens the door and the whole classroom, the whole, every kid's going nuts. They're all misbehaving. They're all into mischief. They're all doing things they're not supposed to do. Kids on the tables dancing, blah, blah, blah. It's all going on. The teacher walks in, yells, all of you sit down right now. And then she begins to lay into the class. And then the teacher's pet sitting up front turns up and stands around and goes, yeah, all of you guys were acting terrible. And the teacher says, Susie, I saw you misbehaving as well. You weren't doing everything that they were, but you were also misbehaving. That kind of attitude of thinking I'm in agreement with the teacher and therefore I am exempt from the punishment is a little bit of what was happening here with, with the Jewish mindset. That because we have the law and we're with God, we're, we're scowling at the nations that we're exempt from the wrath of God. And it's kind of like God addresses them and says, no, you have not been as evil as the pagan nations, but you also have sinned. You also need Christ. Passing judgment on others does not exempt you 
from the wrath of God. Well, here's letter B. Thinking little of God's kindness. Thinking little of God's kindness. Look at verse four. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? To think lightly of means to undervalue, to think lowly of, to value something as, as less than what it is actually worth. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here. There's a whole study you can do on your own that you can think through sometime. Scripture shows that we not only sin with our actions, we sin with our hearts. And one of the main ways, one of the big ways we sin with our hearts is that there are things we love too much and there are other things we love too little. And righteousness is knowing where they all ought to fit and what their true value is. We have a major temptation to love things of the earth like money way too much. And we have another tendency to take the things of God and to love and value them too little. Well, he says you are valuing some things of God far too little. You're treating some things of God too lowly. What are they? God's kindness, God's tolerance, and God's patience. So how are they thinking? How are they treating these things as less than what they're deserving of? He shows that they have been presuming upon the grace of God. The self-righteous man just assumes that God is always going to be kind to him. And that really God should be. Why wouldn't he be kind to me? I'm great. And many believe that just because they were who they were, because they had been born into a certain family, that it gives me some kind of right before God, that he's supposed to be kind to me. He's supposed to lavish all of this goodness on me. We Christians can do this as well in different kinds of ways. Even if we don't do it in salvation, we sometimes do it in life believing that somehow God owes us some standard of life or some measure of his kindness that is there. And he says, you are giving an insult by presuming on God's grace. And to help kind of further show some of the error of that, he says, do you not know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And what that means is the ESV adds a word into the verse here. I don't like that very much, okay? But they add a word for the purpose of helping with the understanding of the verse, and they add this word, meant. The kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. Here's what that means. To those who reject Christ, God shows them kindness every single day. Jesus explained that when the sun shines, the rain falls and people eat every bite they are experiencing the kindness of God that they do not deserve and God does not owe and God does that God shows kindness to the world not because they deserve we deserve his blessing but because he is giving grace that is meant to draw them to himself it's meant to draw them to repent. It's meant to melt their hearts so that they are moved by the kindness of God and I want to be right with him. But you know what usually happens? What very often happens is when we live under the kindness of God, we sort of just assume this is the way it's supposed to be. 
this is the way it should be. God should always be so kind to me because I am great. Why would God ever not give me something great? And when we're doing that, we're failing to see some things. We're failing to see what we really deserve. We're failing to understand who we are before him. Let me tell you, one of the most arrogant expressions that we can possibly say before God is an expression that I have said to him, and I'll bet many of you have as well. When we go through some difficulty and we say, why God? Is one of the most arrogant expressions we can possibly say because we are expressing, God, this isn't right. You're not being fair to me. I deserve better than this. Why in the world would you not give me exactly what I want? It's the great and beautiful me. And what we're showing is that we don't understand what we deserve. We don't understand sin. Listen to me. The doctrine of sin affects every single thought that runs through our brains. And when we think those kinds of things, why me, God? Why would you send me through this? We're showing that we don't understand what sin has done to us. How awful and wretched of an insult our sin is before God. Our sin makes us deserving of wrath. If we live under God's kindness, listen to me, this is what it is. It is his grace. It is undeserved grace. God doesn't owe you a good life. He doesn't owe you the food that you eat, the house that you live in, does not owe you the thousands, thousands of gifts of his kindness that we get every single day. We don't deserve them. Why does he give them? It is meant that his kindness would melt our hearts to gratitude and we would come to him and say, oh God, I want to be right with you. Why have you been so kind to a rebel like me? The kindness of God is meant to woo us to repentance. And so he says this to this group who believes they deserve God's kindness. It is undeserved and meant to draw you. And then let her see the stubborn wickedness of an unrepentant heart. Look at verse five. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Let's, uh, let's talk about the definitions of some of these words here so we understand fully what's being said. This word stubbornness um, is from the Greek word uh, clarites. It's where we get our English word uh, sclerosis, which refers to a hardening, uh, like the hardening of veins that can sometimes happen inside a person's body. Sometimes scripture will talk about the callousness of hearts towards him, Uh, a hardness, a, a stoniness that we humans can have towards God. Different places in scripture, God spoke to the Israelites and told them that they had stiff necks. There are times where he told them, you have four heads of bronze. Whenever we use that expression, hard-headed, that's actually a biblical term. So moms, I guess there's some kind of license to use it there. Hard-headedness refers to when one of your children just refuses to receive your instruction that you're giving them. Maybe you give someone counsel and just because you give the counsel, they refuse to take it. There is this refusal to submit that is there. In other passages, God speaks to Israel and he says, you have hearts like flint, 
meaning not soft and responsive to God, not humble and submissive, but resistance, icy, cold hearts. There were times where Jesus was preaching, teaching, addressing crowds, and he would put this word, sclerites, with the word cardia. Cardia is where we get our English word cardiac and cardiologist referring to heart. And so Jesus would speak to the Pharisees and he would say, you have scleros cardias, hard hearts, hearts that refuse to submit to God. So we might even say because of your mule-like heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself because you just will not repent. And so the text saying, it is hard-hearted. It is a stubbornness before God that refuses to repent. And let's talk about this word repent for just a moment here. The word means to turn, to change your mind, to do a U-turn. You're heading one direction, realize its foolishness, and then turn around and head the other. It's like you're taking a family trip. You're intending to drive west. You accidentally get on the wrong exit and you go east. It is realizing it, admitting the wrong, turning around, heading the other direction. It's an about face. It is not a one degree change. It is a 180, completely the other direction. Scripture shows the way that we repent. There is a door we must enter. There is a bridge we must cross. The bridge's name is Jesus. He's the gate. He's the door. He's the one way we enter the kingdom of heaven. The call of scripture, the call of the gospel is we must repent and believe. A heart turning that involves both of these in coming to God. And let me talk about two important parts to this here. The first one is this, like we have mentioned. The first one is there are those who just refuse to even with their minds acknowledge the need to repent. Acknowledge the need to come to Christ. And of course, there are the secularists of our day who don't believe any of the Bible. But let me tell you one of the hardest parts and one of the most frustrating parts. There is also this massive group under the name of Christian who do not acknowledge the need for salvation, the need to come to Christ like this. There are these entire groups and denominations who are just constantly preaching the message. I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. God's main message is he just wants you to know you're okay and you need nothing. And it could be. It could be that even some of you in this room, this is the way you're thinking. And it doesn't make sense because week after week, we look at the Bible, we see scripture call us to repent. We see scripture call us to come to salvation, but it can still be possible that you could be thinking in your mind, I'm sure I'm fine. What's happening there is that even in your minds, even in your intellect, you will not admit the need for salvation. There are others who hear this message and they raise objections to it. There are many who claim some kind of connection with the Bible and they'll say things like, look, just because I don't buy into your whole need to be saved, need to repent thing, that doesn't mean I don't love God. And the response of scripture is, actually, that's exactly what it means. 
Because if you really loved God, you would long for Him. If you really loved God, you would want Him. You would want to honor Him. You would want to please Him. And there are at least three things that tell you you must repent. Number one is just logical reason. Listen, it's, it's not brain surgery to come to this need to repent. Even many pagan religions have come to the conclusion we must turn away from wickedness and come to honor the God. Even pagan religions have understood this. Logical reason will get you to the need of repentance. I, I, I submit to you, you wouldn't have to have the scriptures to at least know that you need to repent. You need the scriptures to learn the way through Jesus. But even outside of scriptures, the understanding of the need to repent is there. Secondly, your own heart tells you this. If you will get honest, you know in deep down in your own heart, you need to come to God. But number three, the scriptures clearly tell you. And if you truly loved God, you would want to honor him. And verse five says, your stubbornness is storing up wrath. But there's another aspect to this. There's another great danger. There's also the danger of the man who has intellectually acknowledged the need to repent, believe on Christ to be saved, but who has never actually done it in his heart. This is the danger of the church kid. And it's not just kids. This can happen to any of us adults, but we do need to know, parents, we do need to know that there is a danger and our work of the gospel is not just a one-time thing of when our kids say a prayer at a young age, we don't just say, now that's done. No, there is the need for the rest of the life, keep preaching the gospel to ourselves and to them because it is entirely possible it is entirely possible to grow up in church to from the time you're three years old, understand you must be saved, you must repent and trust Christ and to think that they have done it, but to never actually turn. So there are two kind of maybe pictures we can think of with repentance. One is the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross did repent and was made right with God in an instant in just the minutes before his death. And so we learned some things about that. We learn some things about the grace of God that you can be made right with him in an instant. But there's also the account of the rich young ruler. You remember him? He comes to Jesus, real swell guy, moral. When Jesus asked him about commandments, have you honored your mother and father? Have you been a good boy? Oh yes, oh yes, I've, I've lived a moral life. I really believe that the rich young ruler would have just been called saved by a lot of people. He comes and says, what must I do to have eternal life? I think there are many who just would have said, well, you already have it because you want it. Or you've, you've approached Jesus. You've taken some step. But if you remember, he left that day unconverted because he could not leave his love of money. He could not turn his back so there is a difference between mentally acknowledging the need to repent and actually doing it. The church kid. And what's so dangerous about it is they can think they're fine. 
go through their upbringing in this religious kind of setting, mentally acknowledging the gospel, mentally giving a head nod, thinking that faith just simply means to just, to just admit that these things are true, to agree with Jesus. But then that church kid might grow up and live a life that looks just like the world. Go through the same kinds of actions, but all the while assuring themselves, I'm fine. Hey, everybody sins. Isn't that usually an excuse weighed out there for why we can continue in a sin? Continuing to live a life that doesn't turn. And that's why we need some of these passages where Jesus further explains what repentance is. When Jesus says, if your right eye makes you stumble, rip it out. Better to lose a part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Your right hand makes you stumble. Cut it off. What does repentance mean? Yes, it can happen in an instant. The turning to Christ. But when there is true repentance, it will lead to a change in life. It will lead to a leaving of sin. And there's the need for us to consider this. And there's the need for us to give the call regardless of where you are, if there has not yet been genuine repentance, it is exposing a stubborn heart. It is exposing a wicked hardness to God. And can I just say, just because you use the word repent doesn't mean that you have. And can I point out that you could be a lover of theology, maybe be able to spit out the definition of repentance, Use it in everyday kind of conversation. Listen to great sermons. Be a part of a great church and still not have ever truly repented. It is to look to Christ. It is to turn the heart away from deliberate patterns of sin and to come to bow to Christ. I want to be careful here. We're always kind of tiptoeing that dangerous line of, of, of like legalism and the kind of thing. The word repent does not mean to become perfect, but it does mean to leave disobedience. It means to leave deliberate disobedience. It means to leave patterns of rebellion against God. It means a decision. I'm going to fight the sins in my life. I'm not going to serve my flesh. I'm going to serve Christ. The Christian following Christ is going to fall to sin. But there is a difference between the Christian fighting and the one who is just walking every day in the patterns of the flesh. And this is why scripture tells us that we are to examine our hearts, examine our lives to see the fruits. This is why in John the Baptist's preaching, he called them to repent and then said, now go live the deeds of repentance, the lifestyle that flows out of repentance. There is a call here. And then the verse ends. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. If you keep telling yourself that you do not need this, every day that you spend apart from Christ, your wrath is growing. The amount and the intensity of the wrath that you will receive from God, it is growing every single day. What a terrifying thought. Let us come to God 
with a sincere heart that wants to honor him. For all of us in the room, heart examination. For all of us, there is application. For us who are walking with Christ, my, my intention on days like this and calls like this is not to leave, have everybody go home in tears questioning their salvation. There does need to be the occasional examination that happens. But if you look at your life and honestly evaluate, I believe I am in Christ, then let us be reminded that the call to follow him is a call to live repentance. Not a one-time thing, but today after day. When scripture tells us to die daily, that's a call to repent daily, to deny the flesh, fight the flesh, and strive to honor him. But to those who have not yet come to him, there is no way you can wiggle out of this biblically. Your only way that you might claim you don't need this is if you were to somehow say you don't believe the scriptures, which puts you on a path that is a dead end and you're cutting off the limb from which you sit. The Bible calls to you. God is calling to you. Turn away from your sins and from your trust that you'll save yourself. Look to Christ. Have the humility to admit it and then have the sincerity and the sense of desperation that you actually follow through. Pray and say the words to God. I am trusting Christ. Save me. I want to repent. I want to be yours. There needs to be the humility that comes to him acknowledging this. Come to Christ. Let me close this in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven. God, we are undeserving of all of the grace you've given us, but we thank you for it. But there is nothing that compares to the grace we have in Christ, the hope that you have given us. God, I want to ask for every soul in this room, please send your spirit to convict hearts, to encourage some who are struggling, to challenge others and convict who need to be. Father, please give the exact remedy that is needed to every heart. Bring us to yourself, O oh God. Protect us and bless us, Lord, as we leave. We pray these things through Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, The Need for Repentance. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.